Stir us up in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Holy Spirit series. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, His purpose and power. And we have talked about who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We've talked about the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. And tonight we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church. And really we're just going to tell the story of the early church tonight before we have a time of prayer. But um, let's just kind of take the global picture here. In the Gospels, we paint this picture of a coming Messiah. And God had so longed to redeem man since Adam and Eve had left and been separated from God. God had breathed His Spirit and He communed with Adam and Eve and mankind. He wanted this intimate relationship with them, birthed by His Spirit within us. But we were separated from God cast out from His holy presence. We could not have His Holy Spirit in us. And it was only by works of the law that we continued to be able to wait until the time of the Redeemer could come. God's wrath was temporary appeased because God had a plan that through Christ, He would be able to not only save us and cleanse us of all sin so that we would be innocent, uh, but that we would be able to live innocent. And that was only possible by the Holy Spirit coming in our lives. So there is the cleansing of the blood that now allowed uh, the Holy Spirit into us. So the gospel is those two parts. It is the part of the blood that would cleanse you from sin, and then it would allow you to go into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. That's when we see that in the temple, in their tabernacle, a foreshadow of Christ, that Christ would be every part of that tabernacle. And not only would you be cleansed of sin, but you as a high priest of God, you would be as a high priest, a prophet or a prophetess of God, could go into inner presence of God, and that the same Spirit that most Moses had and Elijah had and all these great men of God had what you also have but it would be even without measure because Jesus Christ the unique giver of the spirit we talked about last week would then give his fullness of the Holy Spirit to you and to me and so all of this intimate communion would be again restored just like it was in the garden but actually now better Can you imagine the relationship you have with God now is actually better, I believe, than the one Adam and Eve had? Now, that's a deep thought to think about because you think, well, what do I mean? Wait, wait, you know, that's Adam and Eve. But you live in the time of fulfillment. You live in the time where the Spirit has been given inside of you and God's restoration has happened. Now, we won't have our perfect bodies like Adam and Eve had until the resurrection. But the simple truth is that the Holy Spirit of promise has come today. And you have the same intimate relationship with God that He longed for from the very beginning. Now that's a powerful thing. And I think I take light of it sometimes, of that intimate communion with the Holy Spirit. So that's the big picture. But for the Jews... We often, and when we read Scripture, we often think of the Holy Spirit in a very prophetic way. When I mean prophecy, as I said before, prophecy is the thus saith the Lord. It's not about the future, and it can be, but it's really about God wanting to get His Word into man. And God would fill certain people, prophets of old, with the Holy Spirit so that His Word would be getting down to man. And that man or woman of God would then say, Thus saith the Lord. I've heard God. I'm speaking what He wants you to do today. I'm speaking forth His will. I'm proclaiming His will and His Word. That's the prophetic Spirit of God. And these uh, prophets 
uh, had this direct, awe-inspiring, power-filled relationship with God where they spoke His Word and they did His will. And so not only is God through the Holy Spirit saying, I'm going to save you and fill you, He's also saying, I'm going to call and empower you to be just like those mighty men of old, that all of my people would now be just like that. And so here we are in the New Testament. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be in the book of Acts. You can turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. All right? We're going to just give you the promise of the Holy Spirit. So here's this Holy Spirit, and here's God's mighty plan. So how did it come about? How did it come about? We find Jesus. He has just died on the cross. He's uh, risen from the grave, and for 40 days he's been ministering to you and I. Let's just pretend we're in the story. You and I, the disciples. And before he ascends and goes up to the Father... He's revealed Himself to the disciples, and now they've believed that He's resurrected, that He is the Messiah. And John chapter 20, verse 22 says that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So He breathed on them, and this is symbolic of the same new life that God had given Adam, that God made Adam, and He breathed into him. Now, Jesus has remade these disciples. Remember, they had fallen away. He restored them. He's, in a sense, remade them, the born again. And He, the same way, it's very symbolic. He breathes a new breath into, that, into their life, into their souls. And I believe at that moment, they become saved. Because they've believed, confessed, they've repented of their falling away, believed, confessed, and now Jesus says, now you believe, now receive. They receive the Holy Spirit. That new wind, that mystery of the breath of God goes into their life. And so, uh, that's John 22. Now, the Gospels are all kind of separate in their accounts, so I'm going to blend them together. And it says, And then Jesus would commission them to now take that Gospel, what had just happened, that new birth, just commission them to say, Take this Gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching all these people. And He says, Before you leave, though, before you leave, I'm going to do what I told you on the Mount of Olives. I'm going to send the promise, that's very important, the promise of my Father upon you. Everybody say, upon. That's a key word for Luke when we talk about this, what we're about to talk about. Upon them. But he says, you're going to stay in Jerusalem until you are clothed. That is the same thing, clothed, because you've got upon, and clothed is like putting it on you, right? Clothed with what, you know? Power, right? That's Luke 24, verse 49. Stay in the city until you are clothed. So he says, hey, I'm breathing the Holy Spirit on you. Why would he do that if he said you hadn't received it yet? But he breathed the Holy Spirit on him. And then he says, but wait until you're clothed with power. You're going to be baptized not many days from now. Word baptism means immersed. You're going to be immersed with power. Doesn't that sound cool? I'm going to be immersed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit, I breathed Him into you, but now He's going to come upon you. And you're going to be immersed with power. Okay. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that's where we are. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, there it is again, upon you, and you'll be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's going on here? Believing on Christ's resurrection, they receive the breath of the Holy Spirit, they got the new life, and at that moment their eyes are open, they understand all who Jesus is, His Scripture, His purpose, and so they're born again. Just that John 3, 3, that born again experience, the mystery of the wind. But they weren't yet immersed with power. They weren't yet clothed with power 
to do all that Christ had commissioned them to do. We can be saved and we can be get out of jail free from hell and we can be living in a relationship with Christ. But I believe this is illustrative of Christ's program, His, his modus operandi, His, his chart flow uh, for all believers. That he says that I want you to go out there, because if you believe in the Great Commission, which I do, is for all believers. I don't believe it was just for the 12 men that He told it directly to, because I apply all the Bible to my life, not just different verses. So I can't say, hey, I'm supposed to love my neighbor and not believe in the Great Commission, right? It's all applicable to me today. Do you believe that? Amen? So I also have to believe that they said, he said to them, I'm telling you guys to go, but I need you to be clothed, immersed with power to do the job I've called you to do. You got the Holy Spirit in you, but I still want you to be immersed with power. All right? And so he says... What is this? Numbers chapter 11, we read about this a few weeks ago. Moses says, I wish that all God's people were prophesying, prophets. I wish they were all filled with power to do the Word of God, to tell the Word of God and to do the Word of God, to lead God's people where they'd want to go. Because, hey, if all of God's people knew where they were supposed to go and knew what they were supposed to do, Moses, knowing God had called this nation to be a light to the world. In Exodus chapter 19, God had said, I want you to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my possession. These are the people that I want you to be. And Moses is like, God, I can't lead all these people to that destination by myself. Gets the 70 elders, prays over them. It says actually that God took the spirit that was on Moses, the Holy Spirit, and put it on the elders and they prophesied. Jesus, in the same way, is doing this here. He's saying the same anointing, the same prophetic anointing that I had to do the work of the ministry that God called me to do and bring the gospel to earth, I need you to have that same ministry anointing that upon you. Remember when we said anointing? The word anointing is uh, it's symbolic of the oil being poured out on the things of the temple. Or upon the priest, where they would anoint the priest with oil and it would run upon them and go down their beard and down their clothes. That same covering of the Holy Spirit, that same pouring out, immersion of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I set you apart now. Now you're saved. You can go into the Holy of Holies, but I need you to do the job of a priest. I need you to do the job of a prophet. I need you to do the job of one who is like me, a true disciple. And a disciple always does the work of their teacher. When a disciple's teacher would die, Plato, or you got Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and all these guys. Socrates was a Greek philosopher who died, and then Plato takes his work and takes it and goes his own way. A disciple, a true disciple, though, is one who says, this is my master's philosophy of teaching. And when he dies, I now take that mantle and I go take that school of theology and I begin to spread it around the world. And then I make disciples and they take that school of theology and they spread around the world. They would understand that Jesus was saying, I'm about to leave. I'm giving you the power that I had to do the things that I did. Now you need to walk in the same power that I did. And so here we have that's happening. And Jesus says, now wait in Jerusalem. This is 40 days after he had... Uh, died, and Jesus ascends to heaven. Now look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Here we find the coming of the Spirit. So we've got the promise of the Spirit. Now let's talk about the coming of the Spirit. Jesus has told us 
why he had a promise, what the promise was and what it was needed for, that you need the purpose and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I believe it's for every one of us. Now the coming. What happened? So after his ascension, 120 followers have waited. They've been praying for 10 days. That's a revival right there. Praying for 10 days straight. Now they probably left to go use the restroom and eat and things like that. But we know that for 10 days they were continually meeting in this upper room on the north side or the south side of Jerusalem. And, and it was in the place called Mount Zion. Now, Jerusalem has a couple hills. One is Mount Moriah where the temple is. The other was Mount Zion where the city of David, the old city of David is. And that's where the upper room, we believe, historically was. And so they're in this house, upper room, not a room much, probably half the size of this one. There's 120 of them. And there's no window, there's windows, no air conditioning, open doors and things like that, right? They're meeting there just just praying, just seeking God, just seeking God. Shows up, it's 50 days now, 10 more days, it had been 50 days. It's 50 days after Passover, the Feast of Pentecost comes to the city of Jerusalem. It's one of the major feasts in the Old Testament. And this Jewish feast traditionally was the feast where we would thank God for a coming harvest. So like it's our Thanksgiving, like you and I have Thanksgiving they would take their first fruits of the harvest. They would take the first 10% of their fields or whatever as God had commanded, and they would give thanks to God uh, in Jerusalem. Many thousands of people would come to Jerusalem to take into their grain, and they would give their grain to God, and they'd bring their tithe to God and bring it into the storehouse of God, and they would make wave offerings and all these big celebrations, huge celebrations. People would camp out in tents across the whole area, much like Passover. And so... <clears throat> They're, they're, here's a bunch of people now is descended upon the place of Jerusalem. And they're thanking God for this harvest. Well, God had instituted this day prophetically thousands of years ago through Moses. And it was a symbol in the Old Testament of what He was about to do on this day. And they were thanking God for the latter rain. And the latter rain, I've said before was there's the former rain, which would happen in the fall, and the latter rain, which would happen in the spring. Now, you needed a, a la, a, a, uh, the first rain to get your crops planted and going. The latter rain, which would happen in the spring in Israel, would be that final boost before you took in the harvest. There would be a downpour for a little while, and then that would bring a final boost to your corn, your crops. Or they didn't have corn, but you know, your crops and things like that, and then you would take in the harvest once that was done, that little burst of rain was done. So that's what they're thanking God for, that God, if we are good, always sends a latter rain and we take in a good harvest. This becomes prophetic. Now, do you have to see the prophecy? You see any understanding, those of you who've been in church for a while, that right now God was about to fulfill prophecy that the latter rain was about to come down. The rain always symbols of the Holy Spirit, we said in lesson one. Symbolically, the Holy Spirit was about to come down. They were thanking God in advance for 10 days And God was about to bring in the last day's final harvest of all men for the rest of eternity. That this is about to be the beginning of the end. And what happened on this day is still happening today. It's still raining. It's still raining and the harvest is still coming in. And so Acts chapter 2 verse 1, God is saying, I'm about to take in the last day's harvest of souls. Do you believe you're in the last days? Okay, very good. Acts chapter 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. That's key. One accord in one place. Man, if the churches could just get that verse right there. One accord. 
And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there, hey, look, you can sit down and worship God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There you go for some of you. And they were sitting, and it filled the house. There appeared to them divine tongues as a fire, and, uh, and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. There's the word upon again. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Two things in that last verse. Luke always, uh, most always, the word when he says filled with the Holy Spirit, he never really differentiates it between baptized and the Holy Spirit. And that same word filled with the Holy Spirit, he uses it from the very beginning of his gospel. And uh, what Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit, Mary and all these, Zechariah and Anna and all these people were filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying they were uh, empowered, filled, touched. We could try to define these terms, but the, the English language probably wouldn't do us justice. That the Holy Spirit just immersed them, it filled them, and then it gave them the ability to do something they otherwise had no ability to do. And what happens? Peter gets up, they, all the commotion of all the people who are outside, all the city, because remember, there's open windows, open air. People start thinking, these guys are drunk, but it's 9 a.m. in the morning. Who gets drunk at 9 a.m. in the morning? So Peter goes out there on the front porch of the portico, and there's all kinds of people in the streets, thousands probably of people in the streets. He begins to preach. He, preach, he preaches about Jesus Christ crucified. He preaches repentance and remission of sins. And he begins to prophetically, the Holy Spirit's just upon him, he begins to preach from Joel chapter 2. Now, why is that significant? What was Joel chapter 2? Well, I'm glad you asked. Joel chapter 2 says that this, let me paraphrase it, that it was about the coming day of judgment that God was coming very soon. And God's judgment was coming. But before judgment would come, Joel chapter 2 says, that God would deliver, that save and restore His people. How? He would send them new wine and new oil. What were new wine and new oil symbolized of? The Holy Spirit, that's what we see in our first lesson. And he would pour out the latter rain. And so Peter, I don't know if he knew that or not, I think the Holy Spirit just took over him. He begins to quote Joel 2, all about this last day's harvest. God says in Joel 2, he would be in the midst of his people. He'd pour out his spirit on all people. Slave and free would receive the spirit of God. Now remember, they're in a class system. Slaves and children and women are like nothing. They're property. They don't get anything good. They can't even go to the temple. They can only go to that first level. They don't get Women can't own property. Well, they're just now starting to be able to own property. That Women had no rights even to claim for a divorce, and that was just now starting in the first century. I'm talking they were down here, and we don't even probably comprehend the class system that we would have had to live in. It was all about the color of your skin and who you were and what you were known and what your tribe was and all these things. And who you're, who you're born under. And whatever, if your dad was a carpenter, you're going to be a carpenter. You could never break out of that. You forever would always be who they told you you were to be. We're all very independent now. We're free thinkers. But when he says, now all people are going to be equally filled with the Holy Spirit, it's like, psh, mind blown. You're saying that I can be just like the priest? I can be just like Moses? No, 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 no. Pastor, you can't, you wouldn't, no, 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 no. We can't be like Moses. Moses is like, up here, and I'm a slave. I'm down here. I don't own property. I don't have any rights. My master put a nail through my ear to, you know, to the door. I, I can't own. I mean, I'm, I'm nothing. No, but you can have the same spirit that was in Jesus Christ himself. Glory to God. 
That's good. That's good. He makes all things new, everything equal. He says slave and free, young and old. You know, the, the older people would often despise children. No, you can't talk in church. No, Remember they just said that uh, they were trying to keep the children away from Jesus. And they said, he said, don't suffer the children. Keep them to come to me. And he put them on his lap. And he said, unless you be like one of these. He says, even the children will prophesy. Even the children will be good enough to receive the fullness of the promise of God. Slave and free and young and old. And he's, you know, uh, he says, uh, children are prophesied. Old men are going to have prophetic dreams. And young men are going to see uh, prophetic visions. And Peter says, this is the radical call of repentance. And this is the evidence of God's latter rain. It is now here. The last days of God's final end harvest are here. Welcome to the end. We're here. Now, I don't know about you, but if the end began 2,000 years ago, it can't be much longer, right? So Peter says, this is the beginning of the end. And with that evidence, 3,000 people were baptized and were saved that day. Acts 2, 42. Now look at this. That's the church. That's the promise being poured out, the coming of the Holy Spirit. But what are the results of it? We've got the promise, the coming, and the results. Acts 2, 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all that believed were together. There that word together. Man, Luke is just hammering that. They were together, and they were together, and they were together. They were, had all things in common, sold their property and possessions, shared with one who had need. Now remember, they were all living uh, on vacation. They didn't have hotels. They were living in tents, and some people said, I don't want to leave Jerusalem right now. I want to stay. So some of them would sell places, and say, hey, stay here. So some of them who had extra houses or extra property began to sell these things and say, hey, we've got widows in our church that need. We have poor people in our church that need. We have people who are trying to move here and to stay a part of this revival. And they begin st- uh, putting people up and all these different things. So they begin to mean, minister to one another and meet each other's needs. And day by day, continuing one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they took their meals again together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having the favor with the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number day by day those who were being saved. Note that right there. The Lord was the one adding to their number. Zechariah chapter 4, we read it this morning, that it would be not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God, that God would build His church. Zechariah saw that prophetically that it would be heaven coming down to earth, and that's how God would build His church. Let me tell you, we can't do enough programs at Sanctuary Family Worship Center to build God's church. We can't have the best small groups, the best preaching, the best worship team. We can't start enough good ministries. We can't evangelize and go out door-to-door and invite people to church enough. It says it's only by the Spirit of God that God adds to His church. It's only by the Spirit of God, it says, lest the Spirit draw them. Unless God is the builder of the house, we labor in vain. And so here we have something supernatural happening. The results of a Spirit-filled church was gladness and togetherness and unity and sincerity and sacrifice and joy. And guess what? Signs and wonders and awe and power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but it sounds pretty good to be a part of a spirit-filled church, right? I could go see a good fancy show on Sundays if I want, go hear some cool theological preaching, but man, when the Holy Spirit grafts a church together, there's some awe about it. 
And that's the key here. Look at these results of a spirit-baptized church. Not long after this, we'd see Peter and John see mighty miracles. They'd preach the gospel, be persecuted. They'd see another 5,000 men saved in Acts 4.4. And so the question is, why don't we need the Holy Spirit baptism in our church today? That's the question. Why don't we need it? I can look at all the reasons do, but is there a single reason why we don't need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Why we don't need to be immersed with power, clothed with power, just like these early people were? They, were all, they had all seen the resurrected Jesus. They'd all believed on Him. They all were willing to confess Him. But He said, if you want to be the church I've called you to be, if you want to do the mission and complete the mission I've called you to do, if you want to be a prophetic man or woman of God, a mighty man or woman of God, who can say the Word of God and go out and see a world change, you should, you must be clothed, immersed with the same power that I had. And so just as Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, these disciples were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were immersed with the Holy Spirit, anointed and commissioned to do what He'd come to do. And one author says it this way, he says, The Spirit there enabled them to see, speak, and perform deeds that would otherwise have been beyond their ability. This could not have happened without the Holy Spirit. The church would not be here today. And here's the key. It doesn't end there. You, let's, par- let's just kind of go a summary from the whole book of Acts. We just paraphrase it all and says that the, whole, the, gospel, the apostles, they begin to spread the gospel by the power of God. You think about all the repeating incidents. The Holy Spirit continually came upon them and filled them. Luke would record a total of five times the Holy Spirit would come and fill and refill the apostles for the task they were about to do. It's like right before Paul or somebody or Peter would be about to do something, the Holy Spirit would fill them and refill them and continue to give them the immersion of power, the fullness of power they needed to go do the task they're going to do. If you think about Jesus, he often got alone to pray to get refueled to go to the next village. One time is not enough. We leak. We're, we're unholy. We're fleshly. But even Jesus is saying, I'm continually dependent on the Father. Jesus says in John 15, abide in me, and I'll abide with you. So we're continually connected to the vine. And instead of looking at the Holy Spirit like we've often done through religious lenses and denominational lenses, and I'm guilty of it because I grew up in denomination, and I still am a part of a denomination, and I like that denomination. But it's instead of looking at it as levels, it should be looked at as connection. It should be looked at as relationship, that I don't define my relationship through a list of do's or checklists or don'ts. It simply was that Luke never did differentiate about, hey, this is what you should do and how you should do it and get these check marks and then you'll be this kind of a Christian. No, he's just saying, get all of God that He promised you. Just get saturated with Him. Just stay connected to Him and keep on keeping on getting full of God more and more and more as you do the will He's called you to do. Just be full of the Holy Spirit. Don't think about it all. Just don't try to define Him all. Just get in and more in and more into the Holy Spirit. Five accounts. Acts 2, we see 120 filled with the Holy Spirit speaking in unknown tongues. Acts 8, 17, Philip begins to preach, perform some miracles with the Samaritans. People who the Jews hated were prejudiced against. They were half-bloods, half-Jews, uh, second-tier citizens. These people get saved, baptized with water. Peter and John show up, lay hands on them. They all receive the same Holy Spirit and all with outward evidence. 
Something showed up that people wanted, that desired to get something off of these people. There was some evidence in their life of this prophetic filling. Acts chapter 9, Ananias lays hands on Paul. Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we know from Paul's later letters that Paul spoke in tongues every day. Paul saw people raised from the dead. Paul saw uh, demons cast out of people, blind eyes open, lame walk. Uh, young men who fainted and I fell out a window, raised up on you know, a Sunday night sermon. You know, just all of these things happened after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and these guys, they just, in the middle of his preaching, they just begin to believe it. And then right there in the, in the pews, they didn't have pews, but right there in the living room of Cornelius' house, they just begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that they had the evidence of tongues and were magnifying God. And lastly, in Acts 19, verse 6, we said it this morning, Paul finds these believers who were believers following John the Baptist repented of remission of their sin under the Old Testament. But Paul says, but you've got to have the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know anything about this. And he says, okay, let's get baptized into the uh, following of Jesus, into the name of Jesus. And they get baptized and follow Christ and say it's not just about John's baptism, but we're getting baptized into what Christ has done. And the newness and the born-again relationship with Him and the Spirit. And Paul lays his hands on them and says, if you want to do some ministry, you want to be real disciples, be full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Lays his hands on them. They begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. And almost in every one of these accounts, we wonder, you say, well, have I been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you, you'll know it when you have. And often there is going to be a sign, and three of these five accounts specifically says tongues, but all five accounts say that something demonstrable happened in their life, and they were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to do mighty acts of God afterwards. Uh, I believe the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the evidence of tongues. And, but do you have to, I like this saying best because it says, do you have to speak in tongues to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit? No. Tongues is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But I believe when you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. It's not about the tongues. It's not about getting the tongues. That's, that's just a sign. It, prophecy could be the same. It, it's not about the prophecy or the tongues or the raising the dead or the healings. It's about saying, God, I want all of the promise you have for me. God, you promised me the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You freely gave it to me. So why wouldn't I want everything God had for me? And say, God, I want to be a better witness of Jesus Christ. I want to go tell the world of this good news I found that we just sung about. And so in order to do that, Jesus says, well, I've given you the fullness of the Holy Spirit that I had. Why don't you just receive it? Why don't you just receive it? Believe it and receive it. It is that simple. So normative was the supernatural working of the Spirit in the early church. It wasn't just about tongues, but they had tongues and prophecy and healings and miracles and visions and exorcisms and the like. Why? Because it was by the Spirit God said, I'd build my church. I see a lot of man-made church in the world today. Because I can look at something and say, well, I can do that program. That's a good VBS. We can do that at Sanctuary. Oh, that's a, good, that's a good worship set list. Let's do that worship set list they're doing at Hillsong. That's a good worship. Man, that sounds good when Elevation Music sings that song, Oh, Come to the Altar. Man, let's get that song in here because that's what's going to move people. I could think that way. We could be like, oh, there's a great new sermon series. There's a great new book. Let's go follow that small group and that book. You know, small group, let's read this. But this book is awesome. That's not what it is. That's not what it's about. He says it's going to be by the Spirit of God. And Lord, help us. 
help us. All these programs and songs and music and sermon series and titles and media, all of it's good. It's none of it's bad in and of itself. But unless the Lord builds the house, we will continue to hit our head against a brick wall and say, God, how come people aren't coming into our church? Why is our church is dying? God, how come people aren't getting saved? How come people aren't getting healed? How come people aren't getting delivered off of sin? He's saying, but I have to do it. It's by my spirit that I build my church. It is by the prophetic anointing coming on you that it's not about your abilities. And if, let me tell you something. If Pastor Heath goes and gets two PhDs, I got to get more and more stupid. Why? I say that on purpose. Because the more certain of my knowledge and abilities I get, the less I'll be doing by the Spirit. I love education. I love reading books. I love learning about God. I've got a master's degree. That's all fine and dandy, but that piece of paper is going to burn on this earth when Jesus comes back. It's going to mean nothing. But unless I live my life communing by the Holy Spirit, I will labor in vain to reach souls for Jesus Christ. I am in desperation. I, five hours I was on the lawnmower Saturday, and I was just so sick of the flesh and so sick of my, my carnal mind and carnal nature. I was just continually praying to God, God, am I not communing with you? God, am I not in with you? Lord, how come we don't see signs and wonders like I read in the book of Acts? God, how come we don't see mighty moves of God like they did in the days of old? And the thing I kept coming back to was, are you abiding in my spirit? You, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. We can do nothing apart from him, he says. That it's only in the spirit-filled church that we see forward movement for true kingdom advancement. And I look and I wonder, man, we can do a lot of good church. We can put the best, I can put our sermons on podcasts. We can flyer the whole community. We can do all the right things. But you know what? I know tons of pastors today willing to quit the ministry because they're doing all the right things. They come to us and they come to the conferences and they come to counseling messages. They say, how come my church isn't growing? How come we're not reaching people? Why do I feel like quitting the ministry? Because all the people just stand there and look at me when I preach. And there's no amens. There's nobody coming to the altar call. I haven't seen people saved in years in our church. It's because the Spirit has been shut out of the church. It is only by the Spirit of God. And Paul was writing and Luke was writing to say, this is what it's all about. It must, the church must be built, not on the efforts of man, but on the Spirit of God. I want the Holy Spirit to do something in my life that I otherwise could not do on my own. I can't speak in tongues on my own. I can't dream dreams on my own, prophetic dreams. I can't, I can't have the boldness to do what He wants me to do. I can't see a single healing or a single miracle without Him. Those things, I need Him. I want to get in my religiousness away from the things that I know that I can do well. And say, God, put me in elements where I know I can do nothing apart from you. It's good to do the things we know how to do. But get to a place where, God, I am utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit to do things. Because, Lord, I know in this situation, apart from you, I will fall flat on my face. I want to live there. Haven't got there yet. But that's where I'm pursuing. That's where me and my personal life, that's where God, I think, is calling me to. And I look at the modern church today, and I do believe Acts 1-8 is this program for all believers. It is a modus operandi. It's a mission statement. 
that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me. None of these apostles or early church people could ever imagine a church without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want us to get to a place where we're just seeking after, saying, God, I want to abide in you. God, I need the Holy Spirit connection. I need to be connected. I want to think about the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day basis. So as I'm going through my life, that I just need Him to breathe. I just need Him to get through the day. And not just to get through in a, oh, I'm barely making it, but God, no. To do things that I could never wise do on my own, that God would just, just show up mighty in my life today. And that this week I could give God glory. And He would get all the glory because I would know I did not do this thing. I didn't do this week by myself. There's no way I could have done this week by myself. It had to have been God. That's where we need to live. These guys were living so far. That's why Jesus chose ignorant, uneducated fishermen. Because there ain't no way they could have done this without the power of the Holy Spirit. May we get to that place. I'm going to ask the, uh, Miss T and, and John if you guys would just come back and, and play something. Maybe place a freedom for us. Let's not unintentionally divorce ourselves from the Holy Spirit's power. I wanna, we wanna, we want to do the will of God for our community, for our families. We want to complete the Great Commission. We need His dependency. We need to depend on Him. And so I think that's what we want to pray for tonight as we close in prayer. God, I need you. God, I need you. Let's just bow our, bow our heads. Just, let's just receive.